it all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Joshua Broder, CEO of Tilson Technology Management. Under Josh's leadership, Tilson has grown from less than 10 employees to over 600 today, earning a top spot on the Inc. 5000 list for the past 11 years. He is also the founder of Tilson's public utility affiliate, which develops, owns, and leases back 5G infrastructure, including poles, towers, and fiber nationwide. Josh cut his teeth in leadership as an Army signal officer on missions in Europe, the Middle East, and Central Asia, where he was awarded the Bronze Star for service in Afghanistan, designing, building, and operating the communications network for U.S. forces. Josh holds a bachelor degree from Middlebury College and is a graduate of AT&T's Operation Hand Salute at JFK University with a certificate in entrepreneurial studies. Josh Broder, welcome into the corner office. Thanks. It's wonderful to be here. Ah, great to have you again. We spoke a couple of weeks ago and your business has been booming during these times. Communication, of course, has been a big part of all that we've had to do during the pandemic. And we'll get a chance to talk about Tilson. But let's start with you. I'd always like to kind of start a little bit with the early family life. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and, you know, family, brothers, sisters, parents. Sure, Brand. So I, I grew up in Portland, Maine, uh, which yeah. is is a great place to raise a family. It's actually where I live now. Um, and I'm, I'm raising my own family. Uh, and, 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 and I grew up with an older brother um, and uh, and my my mom and dad in, you know, kind of a I, idyllic setting, really. I mean, Maine doesn't have a lot of traffic or a lot of crime. And, and you know, the, the, the schools are good. And so, um, you know, when I was uh, growing up, the thing I really wanted to do was, uh, to be a leader and, um, and to sort of get back to the comfort and safety and security, uh, that I really enjoyed, you know, growing up in that idyllic setting. And so, um, when I, when I was getting to high school, I, I applied for a scholarship, uh, from the army to do ROTC. Um, and, and so that really came, came right out of the, the place yeah. I had come from. Awesome. Mom and dad, uh, was, was dad in the service? Uh, what kind of work did he do growing up? Yeah. So my mom was a teacher. My mom, my, my parents are both alive and, and, uh-huh. and my, my mom, uh, was a teacher and my dad, uh, was a lawyer, but he was a, a Navy veteran. I knew there had to be some sort of military, uh, <laughs> influence there, veteran. So mom, uh, obviously had the educational background and inspired you for that. Were you a good student in school? You know, I, I was a good enough student. Um, 
I, I, I was, I was a kid that a lot, a lot of kids found annoying and that school came easily to me. Um, and, and so You're getting the straight A's, right? I, 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 I did fine. And, and, and that I, I still had time to do some other things. And so when I was in high school, um, I was a pretty serious trumpet player. Um, oh, cool. and so, you know, I, I enjoyed music and, um, and I also was involved, uh, in a, in a youth program called the Civil Air Patrol. Um, which is an auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force. Think of it as like Boy Scouts with an aviation kind of focus. And so, you know, I was I was into flying. Yeah, great. So, did you actually uh, get your pilot license at an early age? You know, I I didn't actually get a a pilot license before I left the program, but I did I did um, get to solo an airplane as a student pilot. So I was at a place where I could nice. I could fly by myself, but I, I couldn't take passengers yet. Awesome. Awesome. What were some of the uh, kind of influencers? You know, it sounds like mom and dad obviously had a role in it, but were there other people, coaches, um, you know, music teachers that had an influence on you? And if so, what, you know, what were some of those things that you remember from way back when? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was lucky enough at that age to be surrounded by people who were totally committed um, to kids. Uh, and so, you know, at the school I went to, I had incredible teachers. I can think of one teacher in particular kind of kicked my butt. I, I think she had flagged me. She'd flagged me as one who it, who it came easy to. And, you know, she, she was determined to push me and she taught she me stepping up your game. She huh? did. She did. Her, her name was Deva Donovan. And, and, uh, and she, um, she taught me how to write and she taught me how to critical think. Um, and awesome. she, she didn't, she didn't let me skate by. What, what grade was that? Or what elementary school? That was eighth grade. Eighth grade. Yeah. Well, that's a critical time too. You know, we go through all those changes during middle school and great to have someone. It isn't amazing how we remember names of people uh, that had such an influence on us during those periods of time. Yeah. You know, I, I also remember um, a, a guy by the name of Victor Cody, uh, who, who was a volunteer, you know, at the, at the aviation youth, youth program. Yeah. And, yeah. and part, part of the, the program, it was sort of half leadership, half aviation. And so, he, he was really on the, on the leadership side of it. And, um, and he, he really taught me that it wasn't about me and it was about taking care of other people and bringing them along. Wow. Um, wow. and you know, I, I feel like that's been a, been a theme in, in my life <laughs> throughout yeah. is that, you know, yeah. it, it really isn't about you as a leader. Great service orientation early on. What a, what a tremendous thing. What about entrepreneurial activities? Were you involved in things? I mean, you obviously have, we'll talk about Tilson in a minute and how you've grown that so successfully, but did that come at an early age? Was there the uh, ubiquitous paper road or other things that you did as an early uh, adolescent? Yeah. So commerce to me came really late. Um, I, yeah. I was, I was what you would describe as an intentional leader and, and an accidental technologist and business person. And so, <laughs> uh, and I'll tell you more about that later, but that, yeah. But the, uh, you know, the first time I encountered a, a P&L or a financial statement um, was in my late 20s when I got out of the army and I was in a job and because I was a technology guy at that point, because I had gotten into technology in the military, I was I was helping a big business put in a, an accounting system. And, you know, as I was I was looking at it, I said, what's AP and what's AR? What do those stand for? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get the basics right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. And, and what were some of the other jobs that you had growing up that did you, you know, kind of, uh, have to work, you know, part-time secondary school, high school into college, you know, were there things that you did for spending money? Yeah, I worked a lot. Um, and so in, in high school, I worked as a sea kayak guide, uh, in the summertime, nice. um, nice. which, you know, another, another great main story, right? You know, your, your summer job's not scooping ice cream. It's, it's, uh, taking sea, sea kayak trips out. 
Um, so, so I was, I was a main guide. Um, and, uh, and I also, uh, played, played trumpet a little bit, um, uh, which helped provide a little bit of income. And yeah. Now was that what you, you, you played in a school, uh, location or did you actually go out and entertain at, uh, nightclubs and so forth? Yeah. You know, I, I played, I played in a, in a school band that went far, uh, in a jazz combo, which is a, another story about a, a great, uh, music teacher mentor. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I was on the music faculty of a, of a, a summer dramatic camp, um, nice. you know, which sort of transformed that into, into some, some spending money, but, you know, my, my real work really started in, in, in college. And right. what I found, I was that guy who had all the college jobs. Um, right, right. and, uh, and I, I, I sometimes brag that I don't think I did an hour of homework or, or, or thesis writing that I wasn't on the clock. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the guy who sits and, and monitors the gym, uh, and, uh, and I, and I monitored the climbing wall and, and then, you know, starting my sophomore year, I, I got certified as an EMT. And I worked um, in the sports medicine department, you know, helping the athletes, um, right. you know, you know, with injuries. And so, you know, I could treat treat patients for like two hours, but then I then I might have six hours of boredom where I could just get my homework done. Now, where did you go to school? Uh, Middlebury College in Vermont. Middlebury, yeah. Now, was you said that was um, was that under the auspices of um, uh, the NR, NRO? No, I guess it would have been the Army program, right? So, was it a ROTC? So, so Middlebury didn't have Army ROTC, but I did have okay. a scholarship, and so I needed to find right. a place. To do the army ROTC. So they would, they would, they would pay for the scholarship. Um, and so I went up to the university of Vermont, which is about 45, uh, 45 minutes away, maybe, right. maybe an hour when it's snowing. Um, <laughs> which was, and that's for about six months of the year. I was going to say, it's pretty much the whole school year. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that, was a, that, was a, that was a tough drive in a two wheel drive vehicle. Um, I can imagine. But, uh, I, w I wound up spending what, what would be the equivalent of a full semester of coursework at the university of Vermont over the course of my, you know, college time. And that kind of got your minor in military studies so that you can then combine that with the, uh, the army ROTC. Is that, is that kind of how that worked or? Yep, exactly. So it's embedded in the, in the university as a department and you kind of take it awesome. as if it's one of your classes. And what I, what I don't think I appreciated was there was a bunch of other stuff around it. You know, there were some nights and weekends, uh, and summertime stuff that happened, um, right. you know, that were pretty, pretty significant amount of time. So that committed you to, to four years in the army, right? Straight, straight out of college. Four yeah. years in active duty. It wound up being a little bit longer because I, you know, my last, my last fractional year kind of wound up on a deployment that lasted a year, but, um, you know, theoretically it was going to be four years. Well, thank you for your service. What, what part of the uh, world were you serving in? So I, if you could talk about it, yeah, no, I can talk about it. I, uh, <laughs> since it's a podcast, I can't say I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> There'd be a lot of people out there. We'd have to get after <laughs> That's exactly That's exactly right. But, um, no, I, I spent almost all the time overseas. So I, I had some training in Georgia, um, after I graduated from college. Um, when you finish ROTC, you're like generically a leader, but you're not, um, associated with a specific, um, specialization within the military. And so, I, I was supposed to be a military intelligence officer going to Japan. And mm -hmm. for me, that was some kind of weird James Bond, Bond fantasy, maybe. It pro probably wouldn't have been like I would have thought it was. But um, the deal with ROTC was if you made your grades um, and you uh, and you did well in, in ROTC, you got to choose your assignment if you know, you're in like the top 10% nice. of your class. And so nice. I, I made the cut and I selected my assignment and my file went off to a group that was meeting at the Pentagon to figure this all out. And when the plane hit the Pentagon, um, you know, we, we think those people were killed and our files were burned and uh, went in just to kind of a, 
kind of a limbo status for a long time. I, I spent six months up at the University of Vermont um, uh, helping to run the training exercises and, you know, r- running the running the kids uh, over the summer who, who weren't passing their physical fitness tests and things like that. So they kind of put you on hold, right? They, they were, kind of put me on hold. It was just ca- it was chaos uh, after September yeah. 11th happened. And, okay. and, uh, and long story short is I wound up, I wound up with an assignment um, to Fort Drum um, up in upstate New York and then uh, assignment to the Signal Corps. And so when I got to the Signal Corps school down in, in Georgia, Signal Corps is like Army Communications. That's communications, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're I'm beginning to see a, a career path. This is what this is what this is the <laughs> accidental part of the technologist piece. Right, right. I, I hadn't chosen that; they chose it for me. And when I was at Signal School, I really didn't want to go to Fort Drum. I just left Vermont and spent most of my time playing in the Adirondacks. So you know, I didn't mind being in New York, but right. it wasn't the world I wanted to go see. Yeah. Um, what I, what I didn't know at the time is it didn't matter where you were stationed. Everybody was going to spend most of their time overseas. Uh, but I, I wound up trading at signal school for, for Germany with, with somebody who needed to stay in the U S. And so I, I went to Germany, um, right, uh, right as the U S was getting ready to invade Iraq the second time. Yeah. And we were already in Afghanistan and we were fighting some wars in some other places. And this was like just after NATO had come, you know, NATO had, sort of moved into Eastern Europe and was trying to pick up the pieces after the former Soviet Union fell apart. So there, there were a lot going on. And, um, and I wound up spending the, the rest of my time overseas, you know, except for a couple of weeks, I, I got to come home to the US, uh, you know, in about four or four and a half years. Awesome. Awesome. And leadership responsibilities straight away. I know you left as a captain, so I'm sure you had people responsibilities during your time in the army. Yeah. So when I, when I got to Germany, I think I might've been, I don't know, 21, uh, yeah. 20, 22, something like that. Um, yeah. And my, my first job was to be the second in command of a, of a company, which is like 150 soldiers. Wow. Um, they call it executive officer. And, um, we very quickly got some deployment orders to move all our stuff to the border of Iraq, uh, mm-hmm. up in Turkey. Um, and, um, and at that point I got, um, I got a brief period again, like this is like right after I got there, uh, where, uh, I was going to be the. Um, company commander, which is right. you know wow. the person command of 150 people. My my then boss uh, in my in my company was just sort of designated to lead the group that couldn't go. That was like all mm. all the folks who were not deployable because they they had some problem. Right. Um, right. And so I just found myself in charge of this group, trying to get them you know all to Turkey. We were in central Germany, so that meant like loading stuff on trains and getting boats to go around through the Mediterranean. And you know it was like a it's like a big palava, and it, it sort of never stopped from there. And so I wound up. Uh, in charge of a bunch of different units over a number of years in a number mm. of different places. And awesome. um, it was it was the uh, leadership experience and acceleration that I had hoped for, but not the yeah. circumstances I had expected. Tell us about some of the key takeaways of, of what you learned about leadership in the five, four or five years you were with the Army. Yeah, well, the first one, it was a huge education about people. You know, I yeah. was a privileged white kid from Maine. Um, <laughs> and I'd grown up with a bunch of other privileged white kids from Maine. Right. And regardless of that that group's economic circumstances they they were privileged by the fact that they were in a community you know that was relatively affluent and right. um you know had good schools and didn't have a lot of crime like not right. a lot of not a lot of problems up there right. and um and so i got yeah, to the unit yeah, and it you know there's probably a 60 percent diverse workforce <laughs> something that i was good and so when when we got to the army you know there was like first of all at like 22 i was in some cases i was the old man because like Kids were 19 or 17 uh-huh. or 18. Uh, and, um, and in other cases, 
you know, there, there was a few old salts around, but, um, it was a really different group of people. They're from all over the country, from every walk of life and economic circumstances. Um, you know, I remember being in Afghanistan and I had, you know, 19 year olds who are from New Orleans who had left New Orleans because they felt the army would be safer. Um, and that's like after September 11th, when it was all wars, uh, they thought that would be safer than living in New Orleans. And, you know, Katrina happened and like, they didn't hear from their parents and we had like sent them home to go find their parents. And, um, and so it was a great education about people, um, uh, that I didn't necessarily get growing up. And, um, it was a, it was sort of a big reinforcement few years of understanding that it's really not about you. It's about the, the safety, like the physical safety, um, and success of your team. Um, and so I, I had some incredible mentors in the army who were really all about developing other people. Now, did Tilson have its start when you left the army? So I came back to Maine, I was looking for a job and I interviewed for something that was interesting. And it was kind of in a far flung part of Maine, a, a beautiful tourist destination part of Maine, but not a place that I wanted to live. Right. Um, and I asked, I asked the person I was interviewing with like, Hey, I'm not gonna take this job, but who do you know in technology? you know, by accident, I'm kind of a network engineer in addition, in addition to being a leader. Um, and he said, uh, talk to this guy, Mike Dow, who's doing some consulting for us. This was at a, a biotech facility. Um, and, uh, you know, he's doing some work for us. You should talk to him. And so I did. And he had a company, Tilson, he had founded it. Um, yeah. he had one other employee at the time and he hired me as the third guy. Wow. Um, and so pretty early on, I started to introduce some telecom projects to, to what had then been an IT consultancy. Um, and bringing your, your, your subject matter knowledge. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, when we were about 10 employees, the recession happened in 2008, mm. um, which is kind of a whole nother story, but sure. d- during that sort of, sort of crisis of the recession, um, some of my old army buddies kept calling me, Hey, we want you to come work for us. We're at a defense contractor. We're oh. head- headquartered in Switzerland. We're working globally, you know, for the U S there's a lot of wars going on. There's a lot of needs. Like we need a, we need a systems guy and you're the only it guy we know. Right. And I said, well, I'm kind of a leader, not an it guy, but, uh, you know, I'm also not interested in moving back overseas. You know, it's thrilled. Yeah. I'm just thrilled to be home. Yeah, um, and they right. called, they must've called me 10 times. And <laughs> on, on, on the 10th time, right after they called me, I was sitting there with Mike and, um, and he said, Hey Josh, I know you still have contacts overseas. I'm looking for an opportunity to get my kids immersed in another language. If you hear something, let me know. Mm. I said, Oh, that's fine. You should mention that. These guys just called me and I, don't worry, I'm not going to take that job, but maybe you should take that job. Ah, and so long story, long story short, he did. And, wow. and, and so when wow. we were 10 or 15 employees, he was, he, he moved to Switzerland and, us needing did, you, to, did you buy him out? Then, and, I, and I bought him out um, because him out. we needed wow. to raise a little debt, which, you know, yeah. required a, a personal guarantee. And, um, you know, that precipitated a conversation. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I, I wound up taking over the company when it was still real small and real cheap, uh, which Fantastic. was, you know, a, a, an interesting opportunity for a young guy. So you're up to 600 employees today. Tell us a little bit about the business model, what you folks do, and, and who, what clients do you serve? Sure. So Tilson's on a mission to build America's information infrastructure. Mm. Um, and for us, that means industrial scale networks, both uh, fiber and wireless. And um, we, we build for the cellular carriers, um, the wireline ISPs that deliver right. broadband to homes and right. businesses, uh, to public utilities uh, that modernize their systems, mostly grid operators. Um, so if you can imagine a smart grid is like a regular grid with a network on it. Right. Um, and for government agencies, some which are delivering 
broadband or other essential services to their communities or doing whatever it is they do. Um, and so within that, within that business, we, we deliver a really a vertically integrated range of services mm. for network owners or consultants. Uh, in our consulting practice, we do like tech due diligence for M&A. Um, and we do broadband consulting and infrastructure program management for government uh, agencies. And then, and then we move into engineering. Um, we're both civil engineers in every state with a stamp and logical engineers designing the networks. Um, and we, uh, get the real estate entitlements for these networks. Um, you know, the, the leasing of the facilities, the access to the rights of way, the attachment to poles and occupation of conduits. Um, and then we build, we build the networks. And so that's a, wow. that, that's a big chunk of our team, our, our folks with hard hats and muddy boots and, and drills and cranes and, um, and bucket trucks. And we, we build those networks. And then we have an operations group that, maintains them and yeah. provides active monitoring of those networks and, and alerting to our customers. And so we are primarily, we're primarily a services company. We, we yeah. also, we also uh, have an infrastructure development arm that develops um, smart city poles and towers and uh, commercializes big fiber networks that mostly large government agencies have. So like uh, we have a deal with a Pennsylvania DOT, for example, um, to develop commercialization fiber and towers all along the right of way and then and then to commercialize those and make the best use of them you know to bring broadband um to those places so do you actually sell the infrastructure equipment or do your clients already have made that commitment to the actual infrastructure and then you just help them implement and execute it is that is that correct yeah, the, way, the way i would think about it is we're we're a design builder um design builder. and yeah. and and we also have the ability to finance and lease back the same facilities right. that we right. design and build Awesome. Awesome. And uh, as that business has grown, what, what have been some of the challenges? Has it been, you know, rah, rah, rah? I mean, 08 was a pretty tough time, you know, to, you know, get get a business restarted. But, uh, you know, there was a huge telecom bust, as I recall, around 2003, 2004, that probably even preceded the uh, the uh, uh, the, the downturn of the 08, 09 great recession, were, were they in a rebuilding mode by that stage? Did that kind of help you or were there some, you know, challenges you had along the road as the business grew? Yeah, for us, we had and, and have had challenge after challenge. And, and our story has been that of adaptation. Um, mm -hmm. and so in, in 2008 was sort of the first existential threat. Um, you know, our five biggest clients called us um, and, and stopped work. And I still remember one of the few clients that hadn't stopped work because of the recession. Um, you know, this is back when there were fax machines <laughs> yeah, and, and, right. and we received the remittance advice via fax machine and, uh, and they paid us weekly cause we build them weekly. Uh, yeah. and I remember we had this tiny little office, which was like a, like an artist's studio over a theater. Um, and, and it was small enough that because the fax machine's tray was broken, the remittance advice that they would fax us once a week would like fall on the floor. And just because of the size of the room, it would always slide under the door a little bit. The door, yes. so, so, so from the hallway, I could see if there was like a piece of the corner of a piece of paper poking out or not. And I, I remember in those days coming around the corner and holding my breath because I knew we were gonna make payroll if there was a, a piece of paper sticking out from under the door. But if they if they'd gotten a day behind in there, in their uh in their ap i was going to have to do some gymnastics um yeah. so we we muddled we muddled through that and and the way we muddled through that was focusing on what where we thought the market was going to go um which right. has been our history has been sort of like skating where the puck is going to be we thought, and we, yeah exactly <laughs> and, and we thought that you know i went to college in vermont so 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 uh, yeah. hockey was a big deal um 
And, and so we knew stimulus was going to happen. And um, we lined up for that and wound up winning a bunch of really large stimulus projects. And we earned our big project chops on federally funded projects. So we, you know, we would say openly that the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act saved our company. Um, and by the time that stimulus effect wore off, there was plenty of private money back in the market. LTE was like a real blossoming of the private, um, you know, private network investment. And, uh, and we wound up building a whole bunch of that LTE. Um, and the sort of second shock that the company experienced that was existential was when um, AT&T bought DirecTV. So they spent mm. something like, I don't know, 48 or $50 million, billion. Um, and that basically took the wind out of their CapEx sales for a couple of years. And we were highly concentrated on AT&T, like 50% of our work. Wow. And so we bet on ourselves. We raised a little outside money and kept all our people and retrained them um, to build grid modernization networks. And mm. um, we wanted to pick up Verizon and some tower owners and some others as customers. And, you know, we just sort of soldiered on and figured it out. But we always bet on ourselves. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's been similar events since then, you know, where there's been market disruptions. But as we've gotten bigger, we've gotten much more diverse and much more resilient. So, you know, these things still happen, but we're usually better prepared for them. Well, you know, you talked about uh, knowing that you were a leader at a very young age and now you've been running Tilson for over 15 years. What would you say, you know, or, or how has your leadership evolved over that period of time, Josh? What's been the big key changes, if, if any? Oh, gosh, I've learned so much. Distill <laughs> um, it down. Two or three key points. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of them is that when, when I was a young guy, um, you know, in my 20s, um, you know, I had some edge and, and the edge was... I was pushing hard and I wanted everybody to push as hard as I was. Um, and so I got along great with the folks who, you know, had, had, had the, like to be pushed. <laughs> yeah. Who had the same amount of give a care that I did. Um, right. and, um, and, you know, I wasn't a jerk, I don't think, but, you know, you know, mentally I wrote off, uh, folks who didn't have that level of care. And what, what I think I realize now looking back on it is that, you know, that was an easy perspective to have for a 20 something with, you know, that wasn't married and didn't have a mortgage and didn't have kids. Um, I, I could afford to be very focused, but life is more complicated than that. And so now with a little perspective, you know, I look back on that and I think, you know, getting empathy has been really helpful and is something that is often like, I, I think I had a, a, you know, a reasonable amount of empathy, you know, as a ground state, as a human being, but, but there are things you can't be empathetic about if you don't know and understand. And, and so empathy can be learned. It can, right. it can be learned and, and, yeah. and, you know, the core to empathy is a shared experience. And so you can be sympathetic about somebody's plight, but until you've, you know, walked a mile in those shoes, it's hard. So, you know, as I've gained life experience, it's, it's helped me become a better leader and, and better relate to the, to the team members that I, that I care for. And so, um, you know, I think the, you know, another big, big lesson, um, along the way is, is about the many, uh, forms and languages of communication. And, you know, I've learned that, you know, what I think is communication isn't really communication necessarily, you know, it needs to be, it needs to be, uh, you know, communicated in 10 different ways in five different languages, um, you know, with 12 different iterations, um, you know, because, because, because the listeners, this goes back to this empathy thing, like the listeners aren't necessarily paying attention and maybe for good reasons, right. at, you know, at the moment that you want to communicate it. I've recently heard that some CEOs are uncomfortable having their answers questioned rather than their questions answered. <laughs> Have you been in that situation? And if so, how do you handle that? Yeah. So, you know, part of our, part of our 
culture here at Tilson is is that we have some values that we really care about. And the top value, there's a there's an acronym uh, that we use, Scrappy, and 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 the S is for safety. Mm. And when we first rolled out safety, what we meant by that is we do some dangerous stuff and we're not going to hurt anybody for money. It's more complicated than that, but that's the short story. Yeah. Um, but over time, we've also adapted safety to mean psychological safety. Mm. And there's two aspects of psychological safety in my perspective. And I'm, I'm getting to your question on the second aspect of it. The, the first is um, that people can feel safe to be their authentic selves here, mm. um, you know, and, and, and really be who they are. And, and the second is they can be psychologically safe, which means that they can question authority. They can ask a difficult question. They can voice an opinion. They can be wrong. They can make a mistake. And none of those things are fatal here. Mm. Um, and, and so, you know, ultimately like you've got to live, you've got to live that, right. You can talk about it, but, but you have to live it and and demonstrate it. And so to your point about like being questioned, gosh, there's nothing more valuable to a leader than someone who's willing to offer their candid advice. So that's part of your culture. I love it. What would you say is most unique about the company culture at, uh, at Tilson? So what, what, one thing that our, our customers and our clients tell us when they look at our values is that they see a number of those values in other companies, but one they don't see anywhere else is composure. That's the C in Scrappy. Um, and for us, when we say composure, we say we make order out of chaos and we are confident that we'll find a way through any challenge. And, and part of being a growth company, so we're 30 to 50% growth every year. Crazy. Is that it's not just like a blip that you can, you know, grit your teeth and muscle through. It's like our everyday here, right? So, right. you know, it's got to be at a sustainable pace. And, um, and part of that is understanding that when you are growing, you're taking on the hardest, biggest thing you've ever done before. Right. And the niche, the value niche we've developed for our clients is that we help them with their emerging needs that are new to them. Mm-hmm. And so it's the hardest and most difficult thing they've ever done. And so one of the things they're buying from us is not just our professionalism and expertise, but our composure in the moment so that we can all be our best selves here um, and, and, um, and, and, and bring a sense of, of calm and confidence um, to really sticky problems. How do you kind of, I mean, you know, love the scrappy and, and I hope to hear more of the, you know, the, the balance of that acronym as we go through our discussion today, but, but, you know, you're the CEO in, in that, in many essence, you're the, you're the, you're the modern founder of the company. You know, I know you didn't found it originally, but you've certainly grown it to where it is today. How do you kind of build that company culture? You know, what, what is it that you do personally that helps to kind of emanate, you know, the core values within the organization? I think there's really two things. Um, and you know, there's lots of things that people talk about around culture and, you know, people put them on the, put their values on the walls. We do that. Uh, but that, that's not what makes culture. They say, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And and fundamentally what you do as a leader is you hire and fire, um, and, and you develop your team. And so on the hire and fire side, we try and be clear about what our values are, um, to our candidates and allow them to opt in or opt out. And we try and evaluate our candidates on those bases. And then when we decide like, hey, is this person the right fit and should they stay here? You know, are they living our values? You know, we retain, especially we retain based on values. And, right. um, and it's hard to identify that in the interview process. It's, right? it's really hard. And so yeah. we're better than we were about it, but we're far from perfect. And so what we're really good at though is retaining um, and promoting based on, on, on those values. And, um, and what we try and do is we make a connection between those hiring and firing decisions and those values. 
And so a lot of times when something bad happens in a company, um, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. It's like somehow it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like somehow an HR thing that you don't talk about what happened, but everybody knows what happened. Right. And so, you know, when, when somebody doesn't live, you know, according to our values, the R in scrappy is respect. Um, and we find that somebody's not respectful in our company, maybe they're, maybe they're a rainmaker. Right. And in a lot of companies, that person gets by with bad behavior because like they're capable. He's bringing to the business. Yeah. He's doing the job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, to be fair, usually that person who's a troll is a he, um, and and is acting badly and, and we'll we'll terminate that person. And so instead of being like, this person's not here anymore and we can't talk about it. We're like, we think this person was disrespectful. You know, maybe they didn't see something illegal or whatever, but we, we think this person was disrespectful for for our team members. And for that reason, they couldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having that explicit conversation, that yeah, you, yeah. you got to make a connection between the, the talk and the behavior. And so it doesn't work if you're not actually doing it. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to help people make the connection between what happened and, and, and the, the living of those values. When you interview, what do you personally look for in the people that you invest in and hire? Yeah. So I, I'm looking for someone who's a critical thinker, first mm-hmm. and foremost, meaning they question the facts that are put in front of them. And they ask the next level. They don't take anything on face value. And there is a subtle difference between a critical thinker and someone who is like skeptical and closed. And so I'm looking for someone who's both open um, and, and, you know, willing to engage with other people, but also is willing to be a critical thinker about what's put in front of them. Mm -hmm. I'm also working, looking for work ethic. Um, And, and, you know, then finally I'm looking for someone who has those shared values. And so, you know, if you've got a compass and, and you have, you have a, and you're a critical thinker and you've got like the horsepower, you know, the, the inherent work ethic and, you know, innate intelligence, um, you know, that, that to us is a really dynamite combination. We do not hire like super high performing individual contributors or managers that don't have like a shared value system. And if we, if we do it by accident, then we act on it. How do you decide when it's time to micromanage or, or stay out of the way <laughs> or out of somebody's sandbox? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's a, it's a bit more of an art than a science. I, yeah. I would say I, I, I've hired a really strong senior management team to run the company. Yeah. And the more I stay out of their way, the better it goes. <laughs> good, good philosophy. Um, you know, I, I've tried to hire people that are better than me at the things that they're doing. Right. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, why hire somebody? Sure. Um, and, and so I find that you know, if I can get the right people around me and empower them and have the right communication dynamic and get out of the way, it goes better. There are times when you need to dig in. And, and I feel like being willing to like roll up your sleeves and open a spreadsheet and crunch a number or look at something and then come back like with an astute question that's oriented, like is sometimes the right thing. And it's a little hard to reconcile that that, that might on its face look like a moment of micromanaging, but some of those targeted interventions, I think, are, are are really effective. And I think as a leader, you need to be comfortable having some judgment and intuition around when you need to get out of people's way, when you need to when you need to probe a little bit. Yeah. Ultimately, what I don't want to do is do the thing for them. Right. And so, right. you know, I, I'd like to think the difference between a micromanager and an engaged leader is knowing how to ask a really astute and oriented question, not like pushing your team out of the way and doing it's it a yourself. Continuum, yeah, it's a continuum. Yeah, you, you've got to closely monitor and, and, and hopefully get back to the point where you're not, you know, in that micromanagement stage sooner than later. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I'm enamored with your scrappy acronym. So we, we've done SCNR. You've got to give me the APY. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so uh, it's actually API. Oh, API. Okay. All right. So we're selling a little different. That's all right. Yeah. So, so, so the A is accountability. We're all collectively accountable for our work. And so we're like, we don't want people who have a feeling of like, that's not my job. Um, right. Like, right. like ultimately we're responsible to our client. And so we're, we're all going to link hands and, and make sure we get the thing done for them. Um, P, P is professionalism. Um, and so, you know, in addition to having all this moral compass stuff and doing the right thing by our people, we actually have to be good at our jobs and, and know what we're doing and be our trusted go-to two persons by our and that's internally as well as external. Yeah, a hundred, hundred percent. Um, yeah. and, and in the eyes integrity, we do what's right. Um, and so ultimately, you know, we're not willing to cut corners. Um, that, that goes a little bit back to our safety value at the beginning, but, um, you know, we're really not willing to, to cut corners, um, to get, to get to the results and, and the growth that we want. And, and so some of those are, are familiar sort of corporate values or organizational or institutional values you see, but we really think the way we think about safety and the way we think about composure is like meaningfully different from other organizations we encounter. Thank you for sharing that with us. Fantastic. Well, we're just about out of time, but we always ask one last question, Josh. And, you know, what's that career and life advice you'd give to someone who maybe has their eyes on their corner office themselves or, or perhaps maybe in your case, you know, let, let, let's talk to your younger self about 15 years ago before you started Tilson. What, what would you tell, you know, Josh Broder at that point in time prior to starting up or, or really joining Tilson and then, and then taking it to its new heights? Uh, some of the life advice that you'd like to give that, you know, that younger self of yours. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say, say yes, as often as you can, uh, particularly early in your career when you're trying to figure things out uh, and try some things on. Um, there's so much need in the world, right? There's need for leadership. There's need for expertise. There's need for ownership and people will ask you. (laughs) And, uh, and if you say yes, they'll come back to you. Um, and, and so, you know, saying yes is less expensive. Uh, when you're younger and you have less responsibility. And so I, you know, I I had a number of really incredible foundational experiences because something came by and, and I, and I said yes to it. Um, and so I would encourage, I would encourage people to do that early. Fantastic. Anything else to add? Um, you know what, if, if people are thinking about being a business owner or being a business leader, um, you know, I would say there's there's two feedstocks for a successful business. Um, talent and cash. Yep. And you probably need more of both than you think. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. Well, Josh Broder, CEO of Tilson Technology Management, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Brant. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.